Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. And thank you. Would you please stand? John 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan, and good morning, church. I am delighted to be with you this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, your word is like a, a banquet that is spread before us. May we feast on your word this morning. Use it for our sustenance as you pour more of your grace into our lives. Use it to renew our minds, capturing every thought for Christ. Use it to fit us for heaven. Use it to teach us to obey. Use it to turn our sorrow into joy. May your Holy Spirit guide us into all truth, we pray. Amen. So as most of you know, I grew up an MK, a missionary kid. And one of the places that we lived was in Quito, Ecuador. Quito is in a valley nearly two miles high, twice as high as Denver. And over, uh, overarching in, in Quito was a volcano called Pichincha, which is higher than Pike's Peak. Growing up, I remember trying to see the top of Pichincha from inside the house. I literally had to lay on the floor and look up out the window to see the summit. It was, it was so far up there. We lived in the shadow of that mountain. In our study of the Gospel of John, we are just hours away from the cross. If it were a mountain, we would have to strain to see the top of it. It looms overhead. Everything in our passage today is in its shadow. 
Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus walked steadily, resolutely toward the cross. At first, the mountain appears small and far away, but now that we're up close, it blocks all else from view. In the book of John, Jesus has been talking with his disciples about his death and resurrection since chapter 2. What's he been saying? He said over and over again, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then suddenly in chapter 12, he says what? My hour has come. Our text today is part of what is known as the farewell discourse. It's covered by John in chapters 13 to 17. Jesus talks with his disciples only hours before his death. What he says is of supreme importance. We break up our text each week into manageable sizes for our study, but the thoughts build on one another. In our passage four weeks ago, we talked about the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. We're to love one another. That's not the new part. As Christ loved us, that's the new part. We're part of a chain of love. It's the profound love that unites the Trinity to each other, then unites God to the disciples, and finally unites the disciples to one another. Three weeks ago, Pastor Chris talked about the world's hatred of Jesus and his disciples. If the disciples are known by their love, the world is defined by its hatred. This provided the backdrop to the work of the Spirit that Pastor Scott talked about two weeks ago. The Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus, and we, as his disciples, also bear witness to him. Then last week, Pastor John talked about how the hatred of the world will result in persecution. Jesus is going away, but it is to his disciples' advantage that Jesus goes away, because if he goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit to them. In our passage today, Jesus continues to talk about the cross and what lies beyond it. He talks about how the disciples will weep and lament while the world rejoices, but their sorrow will be turned into joy. In our text, we will see his return reiterated in verse 16. The disciples reassured. The cross revisited in verses 20 to 22, and his promise reinforced in verses 23 and 24. So first we see his return reiterated. Look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. We need to understand the phrase, a little while, to understand our text. The disciples themselves were confused by it, but it's important. It's used, more than, it's used seven times throughout our passage here. So it's key to understanding the point that Jesus is making. The little whiles refer to two separate events. There's a little while before his departure and a little while before his return. But which departure and which return is he talking about? Is the first little while talking about Jesus' death or his ascension into heaven? Is the second little while referring to his second coming, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or the resurrection? 
The first little while is easier to answer. Remember, this whole discourse is taking place in the shadow of the mountain of the cross. The context is Jesus preparing his disciples for his coming death, which is now only hours away. It's also helpful to ask, how is the term little while used in the Gospel of John? Besides our passage, the Greek word that's translated little while is used four other times. In each of those references, he's referring to his coming death. For example, John 13:33 says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So both the immediate context and the usage of the term elsewhere in John point to the same thing. Both indicate that the first little while is about the time before his departure on the cross. So what's the second little while? Bible commentators are split. Some say it's the second coming. Others say, no, no, it's, it's the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And others say it's the resurrection. Let's test each of these with what Jesus says about it to see what fits. So verse 20 says that the disciples will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. If the second little while in verse 16 is the second coming of Christ, it means that grief would characterize the disciples for more than 2,000 years and counting. It doesn't seem like a little while. But more importantly, it doesn't agree with verses like John 15, 11, where Jesus promises his disciples joy. So the second little while, if the second little while is referring to Christ's second coming, then it doesn't seem to fit what we know from Scripture, if we view that interpretation. So what about the interpretation that the second little while is the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? So proponents of this view would point to the discussion of the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. The difficulty with this interpretation is that, again, this would mean that the disciples will weep and lament from his death until until the time of Pentecost, which is about six weeks later. It also doesn't square with the great joy we're told the disciples had at his resurrection. Now, I think Jesus will indeed come back to the discussion of the giving of the Holy Spirit, but it's not in the second little while that we see in verse 16. Instead, we'll see it when he gets to his transitional phrase in verse 22 that says, in that day. To me, the most natural interpretation of the second little while is the three days between his death and his resurrection. After the first little while, the disciples will weep and lament while the world will rejoice, having gotten rid of Jesus, or so they thought. But then uh, we'll see that Jesus um, uh, will turn, that the disciples' sorrow will turn into joy. And so this means that verse 16 
is a reiteration of his death and resurrection, which is really what Jesus has been saying since chapter 2 of John. We see that Jesus talks about his death and resurrection a lot, not just in John, but we see this in the synoptic gospels as well. Uh, for example, if you look at Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He's reiterating what he's told them before. He's preparing them for his death. He's giving them hope for his resurrection. Even though Jesus talked with his disciples often about his coming death, they didn't fully understand it until after his resurrection. We even see their confusion in our passage today. Verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Why is this? Why, after so much discussion, do they still not understand? John chapter 2 tells us why. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the two verbs here are key, remembered and believed. After the resurrection, the disciples remembered that he had said this. The Holy Spirit brought it to their memory, and they understood the other verb is believed. The disciples understood after the resurrection because they believed. Spiritual understanding follows faith. So put differently, we must have faith to understand spiritual things. The principle is true for us today. Our religion is a reasonable religion but reason will only get you so far. At some point, faith is required to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. It takes faith to understand that these are not just historical events, but that Jesus died for me, that Jesus died in my place for my sin. I must trust Jesus to save me personally. Through repentance and faith, we are rescued from the wrath of God. We are reconciled to him. He redeems us from our bondage to sin. If these things are not true of you today, Jesus calls you to repent and to believe in him. Confess your sin and turn away from it and turn to Jesus. Put your trust in him for salvation. Rely on him alone for eternal life. And he will forgive you and lavish the riches of his grace upon you. And he will adopt you in love as a son or daughter. He will give you the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that awaits for you in heaven. Next, we see the disciples reassured. Look at verses 17 to 19. 
So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? It's easy to read this and miss an amazing attribute of Christ. We talk often of his love, his mercy, his holiness, and his righteousness. As the second, second member of the Trinity, he's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. We see his wisdom, his truthfulness, his wrath, his blessedness. We understand these things theologically and, and doctrinally from Scripture. But every once in a while, we have the opportunity to see one of his attributes in a very dramatic way, like in our text today. Here we see the mercy, grace, and patience of our Lord. He is our sympathetic high priest. We see the one who has borne our griefs and carries our sorrows. We see the one in the midst of his anguish seeks to comfort his disciples. In verse 17, the di disciples ask each other a question. This question is actually uh, the end of the longest monologue in the Gospel of John. It started in chapter 14, verse 23. So the disciples have been listening for a long time. And all the while, their hearts are troubled. And now they have uh, these questions, so they're confused. They don't understand what Jesus means by a little while. They could ask him, but they seem afraid to. So, as he has done many times before, Jesus has compassion for them. He answers their unasked questions. Keep in mind the context here. So looming over this passage is the mountain of the cross. Jesus is about to have the sin of the world laid on him and die an agonizing death. The disciples should have been ministering to him. But instead, Jesus comforts them. See the tenderness of our Savior. His hour has come. His anguish has started. Yet he selflessly spends much of his final night comforting his disciples in their sorrow. This is the same God who comforts us today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that he is a God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In the midst of his anguish, Jesus reassures his disciples. Next, in verses 20 to 22, we see the cross revisited. In verse 20, Jesus begins with, Amen, Amen. This is where we get the word, Amen. It's translated as truly. It means something important is about to be said. Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. 
but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus is talking about the looming mountain of the cross. He's saying that the, he, he's not saying here that the event that causes them sorrow will you know, suddenly be replaced by this other event that will cause them joy, but rather that the same event that caused their mourning would be the cause of their joy. He's talking about the cross revisited. Until now, the cross is the symbol of Roman oppression. It's an instrument of terror. Wearing a cross as jewelry would have been like wearing the symbol of an electric chair on a chain around your neck. The resurrection of Jesus changes that perspective. The cross becomes an unending source of joy for all of us who are his disciples. The symbol of terror becomes the symbol of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Jesus further makes this point with an illustration. In childbirth, the thing that causes anguish, the baby, becomes the source of joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. In verse 22, Jesus applies this illustration specifically to the circumstances of the disciples. The now shows that the cross is impending. It's just hours away. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What Jesus says here is unexpected. Instead of saying, you will see me again, he says, I will see you again. So is Jesus hinting that he will see the disciples, but that they won't see him? Well, hardly is that is a contradiction of what Jesus said earlier in the passage when he says that they will see him. This is simply speaking of order of importance. Jesus seeing them is more important than them seeing Jesus. Paul says something similar in Galatians 4.9 when he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So God is previous in our relationship. We love him because he first loved us. In John 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So here we see Jesus giving hope to his disciples by telling them that they will be seen by him. The end of verse 22, and no one will take your joy from you, means that this joy cannot be stolen. It cannot be taken away. It's a resilient joy because the source of that joy is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. What is the source of your joy? Is it in the temporary things of this world? Is it in personal peace and prosperity? Is it in the, having the illusion that you are in control of your life? Ask yourself this, what happens 
When things don't happen the way you think they should, what happens to your joy? Is it taken away? That points to the true source of your joy. In our passage, Jesus tells the disciples that the very thing that will cause their sorrow, the cross, will become the source of their joy, and no one will take that joy from them. It would be worthwhile at this point to take a a small rabbit trail to define the word joy. Now, there's a long-standing division in Protestant theology between happiness and joy, and it goes something like this. Happiness is temporary and joy is lasting, or happiness depends on your circumstances, but joy is deep-seated. We hear this from contemporary Christian authors all the time. I say contemporary Christian authors because there was no such distinction historically or in the English language. If you look up happiness in the Webster's Dictionary, it says joy. If you look up joy, it says happiness. If you look up gladness, it says joy and happiness. These are synonyms that have overlapping meanings. If you read some of the smart dead guys, uh, joy and happiness were used interchangeably. For example, Jonathan Edwards is commenting on John 15, 11, which talks all about joy. He says, the happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. Charles Spurgeon frequently said, the more often I preached, the more joy I found in the happy service. Biblically, there are no passages that make a significant distinction between joy and happiness and gladness. The ESV uses gladness more than happiness. Um, There are 16 verses which use gladness and joy or joy and gladness, and they're used interchangeably in the same verse. John Piper puts it this way, if you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. So what does joy mean? For our purposes today, it means happiness and gladness. Finally, for our text, we see the promise reinforced. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In verse 23, there are two different Greek words translated as ask. The first word translated as ask means to question, to question something. The second means to petition. So the disciples have been asking Jesus questions about his death and resurrection. In the first ask, Jesus is referring to a time when he won't, they will not have to ask him these questions. So he's saying, in essence, in that day you will not ask me questions like you are now. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you petition the Father in my name, he will give it to you. As we talked about earlier, the words in that day are transitional. They indicate a shift in time. We're no longer talking about the time of his death and his resurrection. What time, then, 
is he talking about? Well, let's look at the context. Earlier in the chapter, he warns of coming persecution. But he goes on to say that he's sending the Holy Spirit to them. In verse 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In that day is referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The disciples will at last long understand why Jesus had to die. They will finally understand why it is to their advantage that he goes away and sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, becomes their resident truth teller. Amen, amen, truly, truly, introduces another important truth in verse 23. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is the third time in the farewell discourse that Jesus has talked about answering prayer in his name. He talks about it in chapter 14, chapter 15, and now again in chapter 16. He says uh, it, it's, it's a promise that he's already given. But here we see in this verse that it's a promise reinforced. The first time he talks about praying in his name is in John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When we pray as New Testament believers, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, whether we say that at the end of our prayer or not, the only reason we can come to God is because of Jesus, our mediator. We have no rights before God apart from what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We are accepted into God's presence only because of Jesus. This is true of salvation, and it's true of our petitions to him in prayer. Jesus connects our praying with his role as mediator and the glory of God. Whatever you ask in my name, there we see him as mediator, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There we see the glory of God. The whatever you ask is qualified by the glory of God. God is not obligated to answer every selfish petition that's made to him. Answered prayer is for his glory. Children, I'd like you to all help me with something. Let's recite together the question and answer for number four of the New City Catechism. Okay, so I'll start us off. How and why did God create us? Okay, help me. God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. Sounds like I have a longer version. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good job. Thank you. So when God answers our prayer, he is glorified. And when we... Um, we just heard, at least from the longer version, that we were created to glorify him. So when we pray God-glorifying prayers that he answers, we are doing something that we were created to do. The second time Jesus talks about prayer in his name is in John 15, 16. He says, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here, Jesus connects bearing fruit with answered prayer. We should pray in his name to bear abiding fruit because we have been appointed to make disciples. The third time Jesus talks about praying in his name is in today's text. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Another purpose of prayer is joy in answered prayer. God cares about our joy. The three passages on praying in Jesus' name all fit together. If we find joy in seeing God glorified, then we will find joy when God answers prayer to his glory. If we find joy in others coming to know God's glory, then we will find joy when God answers prayer that we bear much fruit. The more he is glorified, the greater our joy. These passages call us to God-glorifying, fruit-producing, joyful prayer. So, how do we set our hearts to do that? Here are four practical suggestions. First, be purposeful about prayer. Set time aside each day to pray. We set a time aside for eating and sleeping. So why not for prayer? We seem to find time for entertainment. So surely we can find time for prayer. Second, thank God for answered prayer. Not only is this right, but it will encourage you to pray more. You'll be more aware of how God is at work. You might be amazed at how often he grants your petition. Third, pray as you read the Bible. Let prayer be your response to God's word. So as God speaks to you in scripture, speak to him in prayer. Fourth, Pray beyond yourself. Start with prayer and thanksgiving. Pray for the nations to be worshipers of Jesus. Pray for our country and our leaders. Pray for the salvation of many in this city. Pray for our church. Do a mental exercise with me. Think about your recent prayers, all the times you've prayed in this past week. If God answers all of those prayers, how many of those prayers will contribute to your comfort? How many of those prayers will contribute to your mission? In the model prayer, Jesus prayed first that God's name be hallowed, which means revered and honored. After that, he prayed for the coming of God's kingdom. Only then did he pray for our daily bread. So petitions have a place, but they aren't the main event. Do you want more joy in your life? Then ask Jesus for things that you know will glorify him. Do you want more joy in your life? Then ask Jesus to help you fulfill the mission that he gave us, that you bear much fruit. Do you want more joy in your life? 
then ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We started out this morning by talking about the looming mountain of the cross. In only hours, Jesus would be hanging between heaven and earth, bridging the gap between a sinful mankind and a holy God. And yet, what's on his mind? We find him talking about joy. He goes to the cross for the joy set before him. He tells the disciples that they will see him in a little while. He reassures them. He tells them that their source of sorrow will become their greatest source of joy. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they should pray in his name that their joy may be full. No matter our circumstances, may we as his disciples be overwhelmed with joy by the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, may our source of joy be in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. May our happiness be found in you. Give us joy and happiness in your glory. Help us to spread your fame throughout the whole earth. Thank you that we can gather today for the preaching of your word. Thank you that we can join fellow believers in presenting our united prayers before your throne. Thank you that we can come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a spiritual appetite as well as spiritual sustenance as we seek you as a deer seeks for water in the wilderness. May we partake of the table in a worthy manner. May our love be enlarged, our fervor increased, and our souls encouraged to obey your commandments with great joy. Amen.